Thanks, Jared. We sure appreciate him. And don't we appreciate Tyler uh, through all of this time. He's just hung in there and led us in worship and how much we appreciate you, dear brother. Thank you. We are going to be finishing chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. He must increase, I must decrease. Great word. A little bit of review. Nicodemus, Nick at night, like to call him, he was a, he was a keeper of the law. He was a strict Pharisee. He was everything that every Jewish leader, religious leader wanted to be. He was highly respected. He was assured as God's chosen people, a child of Abraham, and one who, to the best of his ability, kept the law of God. He was assured that he would be in heaven someday. He knew that. But there's something about this Jesus that just unsettled him. And he finally couldn't take it any longer. He had to go and talk to Jesus. And what Jesus shared with him, just all of his foundation just wiped out. He couldn't believe what Jesus had told him. Most assuredly, verse 3, we review I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, has a spiritual rebirth, cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 7. Hey, buddy, don't marvel at this. You should know this. You're a teacher of the word. Why? And Jesus basically was telling him, why didn't you pick this up in the Old Testament word? You should have. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus' underpinnings were shattered, keeping the law, being a child of Abraham. It didn't assure him of heaven. Jesus makes it crystal clear, you've got to be born again. There's got to be a spiritual rebirth. There's got to be a personal encounter with the living God. Jesus puts the entire Jewish nation, including Nicodemus, one of their trusted leaders, religious leaders, the chosen people, Jesus put Nicodemus and the Jewish people all in the same boat with Gentiles. Oh, 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 they didn't like that at all. In fact, the Jewish leaders and religious leaders would come to a place that they hated Jesus. They hated him for putting them in the same category as Gentiles, as Gentile sinners. But the Bible says, Romans 3.23 and 6.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, eternal death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the next words to Nicodemus were the most amazing at all of all, and he couldn't believe what he had heard. God loves the whole world, and that's why he sent you, Jesus. This world, this Gentile world that's 
are sinners and infected by sin. Romans 5.8 makes it crystal clear again. God demonstrates his own love towards us and while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died on the cross for us. Nicodemus, it became clear to him that day that he needed to make a personal choice to follow this man, this God-man, And Nicodemus was now convinced that Jesus was God and at the same time the Messiah, a man who had come to earth. And Nicodemus gave gave his heart to Jesus, I think, that day. A couple more verses in review. God did not send his son to to condemn the world, but through him that the world might be saved. And Nicodemus took hold of that. He who does not believe is condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So on your notes, number two, Nicodemus, both you, religious, the child of Abraham and all, and all Gentiles, you're sinking in the quicksand of sin. God does not condemn you for being in that place. But what he condemns you for is for refusing to reach out and take the nail-scarred hand of Jesus to lift you out of that sin. Pastor Jarrah shared with us that Nicodemus did become a believer, but it was interesting, it was three long years that Nicodemus struggled with letting the world know and letting the other Jewish leaders know that he was a follower of Christ, but finally he did. But there were those, besides Nicodemus, who were Jews that were convinced right away and they gave their heart to Jesus. And that's where we travel in verse 22. We see that there were those who believed Jesus as Messiah and were baptized. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea And there he remained with them and baptized. We'll see later that Jesus himself didn't do the baptizing, but the disciples did. Verse 23, now John was also baptizing. So John the Baptist is still baptizing and pointing people towards Jesus. So John was baptizing in a non near Salem, uh, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So, why did he pick that particular spot? Was it because God said, I want you to go to this particular place and baptize? Did he have a heavenly vision? No. Um, Was there a prophecy in the Old Testament that he was fulfilling? No. Why? Why did he pick that spot? Simply because it was a dry season and there was water there. Okay? What are you getting at, Pastor? Well, too often we make finding God's will so difficult. John simply went where the water was to continue the ministry that God had given him. 
his location was perfectly suited to what God had called him to do. I'm reminded of Pastor Chuck Smith when he was asked, boy, you picked the perfect location in this valley that's filled with all these communities. They all surround you. And Pastor Chuck just kind of chuckled as he would. (laughs) No, when we chose that location, it was in the middle of a great big bean field and there weren't, there were you know, communities were miles and miles away and there was this little church that was there. Well, then why did you choose Costa Mesa? He goes, well, because I love to surf. And the beach was nearby. And that was the only church near the beach that would have me. (laughs) It's just that simple. Really? Yeah. So a verse comes to mind. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you might know this by heart. It's a wonderful life verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He will show you the path to take. In 1996, we were in Megalia, serving at the Megalia Community Church. And God had put on our hearts, Cheryl and my heart, some years prior to that, that there would come a time when we were to be church planters. And so we were really beginning to prepare for that day. And I had gotten into uh, appraisal work so that I could take care of my family, start a new church, and the monies that would come in would first go to take care of youth and children and get the church established. And we had prayed and prayed and were waiting on the Lord and it was wondering, should we go, should we not? Where should we go? We're thinking about, well, Salem, Oregon, where my folks live. I'd love to plant a church in Oregon. I was born in Oregon. I'd love to go back up there. And then Mark Sawyer called. And Mark said, so... We're thinking about planting a church. Do you know anything about that? And Calvary Chapel. Do you know anything about Calvary Chapel? I go, really? And the rest is history. So, as the Lord leads, He wants to use our desires, our interests, our abilities And in his naturally supernatural way, he wants us just to rest in him and trust him and follow him. So whether it's for baptizing or church planting or surfing, go where the water is. Trust the Lord. Just follow him as you just make him the most important part of your life and your family. Pastor Jared, that's kind of the way the Lord got you here too, isn't it? That's awesome. And all of you folks, just following the Lord. Good to have you here. So then we move into this baptizing situation, verse 25. And there was a dispute that arose. 
surprise, surprise, baptizing and dispute and problems and issues. We still have a lot of problems in with God's people today over this. But anyway, here we go. Then arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification or baptism or what's going on. What are you doing, John? Why are you doing this? And now Jesus is doing it and his disciples are baptizing. What's happening? And they came to John, verse 26, and they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, when you baptized him, to whom you have testified, you testified about who he was. Well, behold, he's baptizing. And all are coming to him. We're losing disciples. We're, we're worried about you, John the Baptist. What's happening? John's disciples had completely missed the point. You look at note number three. They perceived what they perceived as competition. It was really completion of John's ministry. It wasn't competition to John at all. I love that. John answered them, you see, verse 27. He says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. In other words, John was saying, I'm right in the middle of God's will, and it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. John's philosophy of ministry was, I'm not building anything for myself. Everything I do, it's for Jesus. And may that be our philosophy of ministry here at Open Gate. So uh, John's disciples, they're downhearted. And they're going, but wait a minute. We don't understand what's going on. But John's saying, well, the ministry is never about me. Remember what I said about Jesus when I baptized him? Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one to follow. I'm not the one in charge. But I've been sent before him. I have a special ministry to prepare the way for him to come. And then he gives an illustration about a bride and a bridegroom. 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, and that would be John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He's glad that Jesus has come, you see. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. There's nothing that means more to me that my ministry is sending people towards Jesus. I'm a hundred percent about Jesus and Him alone. And may that be true about us as a church. We're more concerned that people come to Jesus and walk with Him and grow with Him than we are about building this ministry. It needs to be all about Jesus. That's who we need to be. And in your notes number four, notice this. Nothing brings John the Baptist greater joy than this. The people are headed to Jesus because 
of his ministry. Remember what John said, a review of verses John 1, verses 23 and 29. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, the straight, make way uh, a straight way for the Lord to come. It's about Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then John the Baptist said, This is what... I am all about, this is who I am now, this is what's happening in my life right now. Verse 30, he, Jesus, must increase, but I, John the Baptist, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. Seven words that truly capture the essence of what ministry is really all about and what discipleship is all about. And John is again declaring it's 100% about Jesus. It's all about him. And that's why I'm here. And that's why we're here today. And then he talks about Jesus. Verse 31. He, Jesus, who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32, the first part, and what he has seen and heard, that's what he testifies about. And he's talking about Jesus. Think about this. Think about what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying, this, this man Jesus, this God-man, who's the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. Think about this. He's, he's always been. He's God. He doesn't just speak theoretically. He was there when he spoke to Nicodemus about Moses lifting the snake up on the pole. And, and he told Nicodemus, have people look to the pole. Look to that wooden pole, and they'll be healed. He knew that that was a picture of him. Someday he would be lifted up on the cross. And all we have to do is look to him to be healed of our sins for eternity. Jesus was there when that picture of him was given in the Old Testament. He doesn't teach second-hand information He's a first-hand eyewitness of everything that's in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. And he's the fulfillment of everything and every picture in the Old Testament. And then we go on with verse 32. And John says, but here's the problem. No one receives his testimony. Even though he's God, very God, in a human body, you, people just refuse to believe him, even though he was there. He's always been there. He's eternal. But they're not believing him. It's a restatement of John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So Jesus comes into this world that he created, and his creation, well, we see in the Gospels, his creation acknowledged him, 
The winds obeyed him. Peace be still. And the winds just stopped. The water upheld him. He walked on the water that he created. The rocks <clears throat> were ready to cry out and, and worship him if those around weren't willing to. And the trees, why, they're ready to clap their hands when he comes to this world. But there's one segment of his creation that has free will, that has to make a choice on their own. And the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, as a nation, would choose to reject <coughs> their Savior. But I love the good news, John 1, 11 and 12, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who just believed on his name, looked to him, and put their faith in him. So now John the Apostle, in verse 33, gives a word of personal testimony here. Verse 33, He who has received his testimony... He who has put their faith in this God-man, in this Jesus of Nazareth, why we know and we certify that this is all true, that God is true. The man or the woman or the boy or the girl that has personally asked Jesus to come into their hearts and they've been born from above like the apostle, been born again, in your heart, you know and you experience and you certify that Jesus is everything that he said he was. You've experienced becoming a child of God. And as Romans 8:15 says, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom from the bottom of our hearts we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. What a beautiful place to be. We go on. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For Jesus, God's Son, who he sent, speaks the very words of God the Father. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. Now Ephesians tells us that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gives each believer one or two or three spiritual gifts that we might minister to others. And we've all been entrusted with a measure or a portion of the spiritual endowment. But to Jesus, God's Son, the Holy Spirit, was given without measure. In other words, if you want to look at somebody to actually know what it really looks like to be completely filled, to overflowing with the Spirit of God and with the spiritual gifts from God, just look to Jesus. He's the example. The Lord Jesus received them all. The Spirit's work in our lives is best expressed more like a process, like John the Baptist was sharing. Why, he must increase. I want to be more like Jesus. And I must 
decrease. I want to be less like I was than when I first came to the Lord. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Let's stop there in that verse. Notes number six. In Jesus, we are not only given eternal life, but everlasting life. What's so special about that? Well, everlasting life means there has to be a starting date. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, and he comes into your life, he will never leave you nor forsake you. You are his child for eternity. You have everlasting life. And that life begins the moment we believe in him. We go on with verse 36. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So in essence, Jesus was telling Nicodemus and review uh, notes number two. This world, this whole world, Jew and Gentile, is sinking in the quicksand of sin and issues. And God does not condemn us for being in that place, but only refusing to reach out and take the nail-scarred hand of the one who died in our place on the cross of Calvary. In a sense... If we don't receive Christ, it comes down on us because his hand is reaching out to everyone to lift us out away from sin and to set us free. Did you happen to notice in this chapter that there are three musts? Can you come up with those? Well, your notes has them. First, the must of the sinner. You must... Be born again. Whether you're very religious or you're headed completely the other direction, you must be born again. There must be a personal relationship with your Savior. And then verse 14, the Savior, Jesus, the Son must be lifted up. For there's only one way for our sins to be completely forgiven. And that's for Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. That we might become a free gift. That we might become the righteousness of him for all eternity. And then finally, verse 30, the must of the Lord's servant. He, Jesus, must increase. You must want Jesus to become more and more a part of your life. And I must decrease. It's very true. God loves us just like we are while we're yet sinners. But when we come to Christ, oh, he loves us so much, he doesn't want to leave us that way. So let's close this chapter focusing on God's gift of love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship him who gave his all for us.